Amen. Thanks. Thank you so much, Scott. And good morning, everyone. Good to, good to be back with you for the, for the second week um, to talk about a, a topic that I obviously feel passionate about, we at CPX feel passionate about, and we hope to convince you to sort of capture some of that uh, in this, in this three-week series. So uh, great to get the opportunity to do that with you. Um, a, f- a few years ago, uh, and for a few years in a row, my wife Michelle and I attended, actually with a bunch of friends from St Matthews, attended the fundraiser for Bear Cottage, which is uh, just up the hill here in Manly. Many of you will be familiar with Bear Cottage. Bear Cottage is the only children's hospice in New South Wales. That means it's a place of uh, providing palliative care for children who are dying and to care for their families too. So it's trying to help them in obviously very difficult circumstances. And to give them a a really lovely environment in which to stay and as they face the reality of their short, frequently painful and difficult lives. It's not always the case, but very often the children here are severely disabled children. And the the fundraising night itself is a bit of a weird night because you you, you dress up to the nines and you kind of turn up with your friends and it's, 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 it's swanky and there's lots of really good food and and there's food and drink and entertainment. It's kind of that type of night. Uh, And you're sort of enjoying yourself. But it's a bit strange because juxtaposed with all of that, uh, story after story of families who've been cared for at Bear Cottage. And these stories are always heart-wrenching. They they truly are. And so everyone's listening to these stories and swallowing apples and trying not to cry or maybe that was just me, that uh, it's very, very, very moving. And one of the fascinating things for me about this event, as I kind of reflected on it afterwards, was it was a really good event for bringing really the whole community together. There were people from the footy club and the surf lifesaving club, from a range of different churches in the area, from local businesses. It really was a cross-section of the community at, at, a, at a really beautiful, sort of tragically beautiful event. And here's the thing. There is not a person in that room who doesn't think that this is a great idea to care for the most vulnerable, needy people in our community. No one's there questioning this is a good thing. To pour money and resources and time into making these short lives as fulfilling and joyous as they possibly can. It's a a wonderful event. But the question I want to ask today is why do we care like that? And to sort of zoom out a little bit and to ask the question, why do we think about lives like this that are often very painful, excruciating actually, not just for the people who are living them, but for those who care for them as well. Why do we value human life, this is our broad question, in the way that we do as a society? Why do we do that? And I'm going to argue, this is a contestable thing, but I'm going to argue that it is entirely because we live in the long shadow 
of a story from 2,000 years ago that rocked the ancient world when it happened and that changed things irrevocably from that time on. I want to argue that if you happen to think that every human life is somehow indefinably precious, that you've been influenced by the Christian story, even if you don't realise that. I think you've been influenced by the Christian story. And because of what this story tells us about the world and ourselves and other people, I think it's worth knowing something of that story and what it claims. So that's what we're going to do. Now we're in the middle, as was mentioned, we're in the middle of a three-week series considering the impact of Christianity on the world, the good and the bad. And uh, to help do that, we're going to reflect on and use our parts of this documentary we produced, this project called For the Love of God, How the Church is Better and Worse Than You Ever Imagined. And, uh, and, and I guess in, you know, for people who weren't here last week, in many ways, this project is a response to the critique that we very often get that of Christian history that says, look, it's, it's mostly been a negative force. It's been bad for us and we'd be better off without it. And last week we considered the question of religious violence and we acknowledged that there are, in various chapters of Christian history, there have been Christians who've been responsible for some dreadful behaviour, for violence and cruelty that really has reflected poorly on the faith. We also made the case that when it comes to Christianity, perhaps counterintuitively, I was arguing the solution to these problems of violent Christians is more Christianity, not less. More Christianity that's true to the original content, to the sort of ethic of love at its centre. So we're saying there's more, more Christianity is the solution, not less. That's a controversial thing to say today. And the reason for that is because when we focus on the foundation of Christianity, the person of Jesus and what he calls his people towards, we recognise that someone who's claiming to be Christian and who acts violently is very clearly not following Christ, but in fact disobeying him. And then we highlighted um, a, a key kind of metaphor or illustration in the documentary which is where we look at, if you like, the beautiful tune, the beautiful composition of music that Jesus leaves for us. And it has a sound that sounds a little bit like this. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That sound familiar? Then do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Do unto others as you would have them Unto you. And so in recognising the very mixed bag of Christian history, we suggested that it would be best to judge a piece of music, if you like, the tune of Jesus, on its best performance and not on its worst, and to focus on the composer himself in order to understand the heart of the faith. That's where we got up to last week. And so this week human value as the basis for human rights. Where does this value come from? What's the basis for human rights that everyone today in our culture 
thinks is incredibly important. What's the basis for this? And we want to say it has a history. It has a story attached to it. I also want to argue that if you happen to think that human beings just simply do value human life, every kind of human life, not just their own children, I'm saying we just have this sense that you know, human life is really valuable and precious and unique and important and significant. If you think that humans just sort of eventually work that out on their own, I'm afraid the history doesn't support you in that. Let's have a quick look here at a, a clip that talks about life in the ancient world in the first century in Rome and Greece uh, where Christianity comes onto the scene. For most of us today, every life is precious, valuable in its own right. Not so in ancient times. In the Greco-Roman world, the world in which Christianity first emerged, it was not uncommon to find babies discarded like rubbish on the dumps outside the city. As a parent, it's really difficult to imagine someone leaving their newborn in a public place like the local rubbish dump. Some of the babies would have been picked up by other parents looking for another child or a household servant. But many were left to the elements or the wild dogs and still others were picked up by local slave traders looking for some easy flesh. Children were exposed maybe because they were deformed. Um, maybe the husband thought the wife was unfaithful and so the uh, child wasn't his. Uh, maybe the father divorced the mother and she decided rather than let him know that the baby was born, she would just expose the child. Now, if you put the child out of the house into a field or, you know, some uh, place outside the town, uh, you were pretty much giving the child a death sentence. We might call that infanticide. Expositio, or exposure, as it was euphemistically called, was widespread in Greece and Rome. Legend has it that Rome itself was established by Romulus and Remus, two victims of exposure who survived by being raised by wolves, of course. A surviving letter from around the year 1 BC, from a husband to his pregnant wife in Egypt, shows just how unshocking the practice was. Know that I am still in Alexandria. I ask and beg you to take good care of our baby son. And as soon as I receive payment, I shall send it up to you. If you are delivered before I come home, if it is a boy, keep it. If it is a girl, discard it. We know why Greeks and Romans practiced exposure, but what kind of society made it legal, let alone morally acceptable? Plato, for example, argued that we must dispose of surplus children. He authorized, if you like, infanticide. He doesn't say how to do it, and he's only talking theoretically, but he had high principles and one of them was that only the best people should be born and others are a kind of flaw in the system and should be got rid of. It comes down to how we measure an individual's value. Yeah, how do we measure an individual's value? Well, I want to argue that it, it is the revolutionary understanding of the human person that... that sort of sends this shockwaves through the ancient world when Christianity is 
born that is the reason for this. Not, as people will frequently tell me, oh, this has come out of the Enlightenment in the 18th century. This has a history, it has a foundation that's absolutely essential. Where does it come from? Well, from the Jewish scriptures, for the Christians, the Old Testament, in Genesis 1, we get a claim that every human being is made in the image of God. People who are Christian have been Christian for a long time read over this quickly and forget how shocking this is at the time. Well, here it is in Genesis 1. Let us make mankind in our image, in the image, in the likeness, in our likeness, I should say, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. Unlike other creation stories, here was humanity as the high point of God's creation. Humanity given a unique place in the cosmos. Humans are called upon to be God's special representatives on earth, according to this foundational text and then when Christianity comes along in the first century it picks up this idea and sort of turbocharges it blasts it out and and democratizes it and so we get the opening of the, the very famous opening of John's gospel do you remember this how could you forget it in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word it's talking about Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And then a little bit later in verse 14, the word becomes flesh, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, believing that in Jesus, God himself has turned up as a human being, we get the strongest imaginable affirmation of the value of every human life. God becomes a human being. It doesn't get any bigger than that. And because of that belief, In cultures that have been impacted by Christianity, each and every human life, regardless of status or wealth or capacity or ability, very importantly, every life is considered to be of immeasurable worth. The Old Testament scholar Ian Proven says it like this. He says, this is perhaps the most radical thing that the biblical literature has to say because it fundamentally puts every human being on the same level. So whichever way you organise society, the fundamental ethos is going to be egalitarian. Now any quick glance at any part of history will show you that we do not organise, either formally or informally, societies in this way. But this is the ideal. Every life precious. God of the universe comes to serve each of us and because of that ancient Jews and Christians came to understand that every human life 
enjoyed equal and immeasurable worth. It has nothing to do with the contribution the person could make to society and everything to do with the love of the Creator. And so in the same way that a child bears a sort of a family resemblance, every man and woman, every man and woman bears the image of God, whether they're rich or poor, whether they're powerful or weak, they're all going to be, in this estimation, a child of the Creator. They're made for Him, loved by Him. Now, very importantly, this is a bestowed worth. It's given to you. You you didn't earn it. You can't lose it. And this is a concept that changes everything. And I reckon there's something about our culture that still understands this to be the case. And we just accept, don't we, that any amount of expense or trouble is worth it in the search of just one human life. One human life. That's what we do. We just, no one questions that. Someone's lost out here off the coast. What do we do? We send ships and helicopters and whatever it takes. And we celebrate when they're rescued. Might have been their own stupidity that got them there. But none of us question that. And here's the thing though. When we fail, and we do fail frequently, to treat every life like it has that sort of, sort of infinite value, we sense that we're transgressing something that's fundamental. We sense that. But not every culture has or does feel this way. Here's, I'm just going to show you David Bentley Hart, a theologian, talking about how shocking this idea was when it came in in the first century. There's a bit of volume here. I think it's hard for modern Western persons quite to grasp how strange in long historical perspective their view of the moral good, of of social justice, of what the human person is, or the unique uh, and almost infinite value of the person as, as, as in each instance. It simply wasn't the case in the ancient world and hasn't been the case in most of human history. This isn't to say that, that Christianity overnight transformed uh, the way men and women viewed one another and viewed their neighbors and viewed strangers, but it certainly <laughs> uh, started with a, a radical enunciation of an ethos that for the most part was unimaginable in the ancient world. You love his bow tie, don't you? <laughs> There's a bit of a story behind that. He, he turned up and said, oh, that was the only thing I could find in the glove box of my car. I mean, who, who, who carries around a gold bow tie in their glove box? But anyway, putting that aside. Uh, here's uh, another version of the same thing, which is Nick Spencer, from, who's a historian, from Theos Think Tank in London, talking about the same co- concept and what it means for us today. I think probably the most important, identifiable, recognisable thing that people can be grateful for Christianity is when they look in the mirror in the morning. What are you seeing there? It is by no means self-evident. You don't have a barcode on you that tells you how much you're worth. You don't have a barcode on you that tells you anything about your intrinsic identity. The idea of who the human is a someone rather than a something. A someone 
irrespective of the fact they may not be able to afford a mirror to look into in the morning. They are not self-evident ideas. And it was the incursion of Christianity into what we call now the classical world that brought about ideas that in engaging with human beings, you are in some way engaging with a bit of God, with an image of God. It's not only people who are believers who've been able to recognise this. Uh, the atheist writer Alain de Botton, who's a, a philosopher, popular philosopher, uh, is not, is clearly not a believer. He wrote a book called Religion for Atheists. Well, he says this about Christianity. He says, among Christianity's greatest achievements has been its capacity without any use of coercion beyond the gentlest of theological arguments to persuade monarchs and magnates to kneel down and abase themselves before the statue of a carpenter and to wash the feet of peasants, street sweepers and dispatch drivers. I think that's a lovely summary. You see, the implications of this belief, which we trace in a whole host of ways in this documentary project, they're immense. They create the foundation for the human rights that we all enjoy today. That takes a bit of teasing out. You might want to follow that up in the documentary. It lays the seeds for democracy and education and universal literacy and the idea that we should build hospitals not just for the aristocracy but for everyone, people on the street and hospices and certainly charity and all the many things that involves. And next week, Justine will be here to sort of tease out that part of the story. And I'm forever wanting to sort of te tease this out and get people to think about the implications of the belief that they have. A couple of years ago, uh, I wrote a book with two atheists and a Muslim uh, called For God's Sake. And it was looking at um, our big worldview questions from, a different from our different perspectives. And uh, you know, it was a fun uh, process, an enjoyable experience. And uh, there was a, something that happened, though, at the book launch, where we, we, we launched the book in Glebe Books uh, in Sydney. And we had lots of people come along to that, and we had a bit of a panel talking about summarising our beliefs and so on. And um, a friend of my wife, Michelle, came along. So they've been friends since they were at primary school together, and she's a lifelong atheist. So she said, I'm coming along to cheer for the, the atheist side of things. We said, great, you know, come, come, come with us. And there she was. And, uh, but she's talked to us afterwards because there was this moment where we had to describe our understanding of what a human being is in this, in this kind of debate thing. And when my friend and co-author Jane Caro explained what she thinks a human being is, which is... And this is entirely consistent with her view that there is no God. Human being is no more special than a rose or a starfish or a horse. Absolutely right. And they, um, it's just a one further iteration of evolution and nothing more. We're not special, Jane keeps saying. And I say to her, do you kiss your daughter at night and tell her that, Jane? And she says, absolutely, I do. I think she's right. She's trying to be consistent with her, her belief. If there's no God, then it has to be true, what she's saying. And our friend who came along, and she repeated this just last week, actually. She said to my friend, I, I don't know, said to my wife, I don't know what I am, but I'm not that. 
said, I'm not, I can't, I, if that's what it is to be completely atheist, I, I don't think I can say that. She's not a believer, but she says she recognised the implication of this belief or non-belief. And for her, this sen- it was the sense of what a value of a human being is that was the, the difference. It's a crucial difference. Now, our documentary is subtitled, How the Church is Better and Worse Than You Ever Imagined. And it's fair to say that while this has been a high ideal in Christian teaching and understanding, this sort of undeniable, irreplaceable value of every human life, Christians have sometimes failed terribly to live up to that standard. And one of the most conspicuous examples of this would have to be the appalling chattel slavery of Europe and the Americas using African slaves from about the 17th century, which we we know a little bit about, right? Christians were part of this. It's a shameful history to face, and we look at this in in the documentary. I'm going to show you a clip from that now, which is the first part of a longer clip. And uh, if you want to follow it up later, you can. Here it is. Scattered across the southern states of America are the remains of breathtaking estates, monuments to a powerful and genteel society that fed on the blood and tears of a slave class. It was on plantations like Oak Alley in Louisiana that African-American slaves endured a system of brutality and cruelty that's barely comprehensible. To support a degree of luxury some considered to be their birthright. Slavery was the foundation of American wealth, especially in the South. And the prosperity of these regions was closely linked with mass market cash crops like sugarcane, cotton and tobacco. But these were extremely labour intensive. Slavery enabled the settlers to harvest the wealth of their new nation. And all it took was a tweaking of their consciences and some twisting of their Christian beliefs. It's true that Christianity was used as a weapon to justify Uh, the enslavement of African people. Christianity over the centuries has been used uh, by many people to justify acts that uh, are very unchristian. The Africans were regarded as property without any more rights than a chair. In practice, this meant they could be beaten by their owners and forced into backbreaking work. Take a moment to imagine living like this, going out to the fields every day, and returning to this one dark room every night. Your entire family lives here, but you don't even have control of your own bodies. Any one of you can be sold off at any time. Do you have a sister or a daughter? Slave owners often sold off young girls to be the breeders of the next generation of slaves. Enslaved people weren't just physically defenceless, they were emotionally vulnerable as well. Slaves were denied any right that might confuse their status as property. They couldn't marry, they weren't allowed to learn to read, they essentially couldn't harbour any ambition for a future. 
Slave owners employed a range of means to assert control, including legislation and violence. They also used religion. Christianity, a message about being set free, was used as a justification for enslaving African people. White plantation owners read the Bible in a highly selective and frankly warped way. They plucked at verses to justify not only owning other human beings, but treating them no better, and in some cases far worse, than their farm animals. They emphasised passages that called on servants to obey their masters, while conveniently neglecting the Bible's radical insistence that all people were made in the image of God and equally precious in his sight. That those responsible for such systematic cruelty could claim to be followers of Jesus and even use Christian teaching to justify enslaving others is truly hard to fathom. And you'd think that anyone suffering under this system would reject such a faith out of hand. And yet, that's not what happened. So enslaved people heard a lot of sermons about slaves be obedient to your masters, but they also heard the stories about Moses leading people to freedom. And they loved those stories and they internalized those stories. And they were certain that that would eventually be their story, that there would be a Moses who would lead them to freedom, that Jesus would not let them suffer forever. That basis within Christianity for seeing every person as a child of God, as made in the image and likeness of God, was certainly uh, a lesson that was extremely important for the slaves to repeat among themselves. People were increasingly recognizing this sort of jarring disconnect between the Christianity that people claimed and that of a slave-owning society. And the rest of that clip, if you care to follow it up, looks at the way Christianity became both a source of strength for the slaves, something they clung to, but also a very powerful force in the abolition movement when it finally came along. And one of my great heroes is the British parliamentarian William Wilberforce, who becomes a very important part of this story. Now, William Wilberforce is a towering figure in world history and one of those figures who lots of people have never heard of. I hope you're not one of them, but Wilberforce uh, was a politician of some significance in Britain and his conversion to Christianity in his mid-twenties led him on this path of incredible work on behalf of poor people, poor and vulnerable people. And he was active within a group that was called the Clapham Sect, there's just a bunch of friends who were Christians who decided, they were quite influential people, who decided to spend their time and their energy improving the lives of children in factories, for instance, in cotton mills. They were working on education and prison reform and hospitals for the poor and this sort of thing. But when he was confronted with the reality of slavery, it was this that became the defining project of Wilberforce's life. He was going to use his political position to advocate against the slavery in Britain and in its colonies. And so he was campaigning for, against this, uh, this problem for decades before he was successful in stopping it. He wasn't the only voice in the struggle, but he was probably the most important. 
And the really inspiring part of this story is that William Wilberforce made himself very unpopular in order to achieve what he saw as the need for justice, the right thing to do. He was maligned, he was ostracised, he was made fun of, and he was excluded. He didn't stop. Why? Because every person is made in the image of God. This was the inspiring conviction that cost him a lot, including his health, before he was able to be successful in this. Let's have a look at the end of the William Wilberforce story. Wilberforce's motivation came from his conviction that all people shared a common humanity, whether kings or servants, princes or peasants. Slavery was a disgrace to Britain and a stain on the soul of humanity. It had to be abolished. Wilberforce told the House of Commons, so enormous, so dreadful, so irremediable did the trade's wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for abolition. Let the consequences be what they would. I from this time determined that I would never rest until I had effected its abolition. This wasn't just about reforming the way slavery was carried out, but eradicating it altogether. And it's easy to underestimate just how hard it was to convince people that ending slavery was a good thing. There was huge opposition to the idea. And at one point, Wilberforce was up against most of the cabinet, the Lord Chancellor, the Secretary of State, Admiral Lord Nelson, even the royal family. And of course, there were powerful commercial interests that viewed slavery as necessary to the nation's prosperity. There was also a radical shift in thinking required to see slavery as morally wrong. It was simply part of the fabric of society and Wilberforce and his widening circle were out of step with their more rational countrymen. In the Middle Ages, you have the beginnings of a real theoretical assault on the notion of slavery. You have the recognition in the 12th century that there are aspects of human life that cannot be controlled by any other. And by the 18th century, of course, you have the great anti-slavery movement, which is almost entirely the church's business. If the abolition of slavery had been left to enlightened secularists in the 18th century, we'd still be waiting. Wilberforce was friends with Josiah Wedgwood, the famous manufacturer of bone china. Wedgwood released what would become a well-known pattern featuring the profile of an African slave in chains. Inscribed around him were the words, am I not a man and a brother? There was also a female equivalent with a woman asking, am I not a woman and a sister? The design was widely popular. It was incorporated into plates, jugs, tea caddies, bracelets and hairpins much the same way wristbands or ribbons are worn today to signal support of a cause. We all know that you're not supposed to bring up politics or religion at dinner parties, but Wedgwood had galvanised a potent force for the cause, the housewives of England. Women were the main food purchasers in every household, and they played an important role in boycotting sugar grown on slave plantations. In the 1790s, they helped swell the number of protesters to 300,000. It was now popular to oppose slavery with pounds, shillings and pence. 
Britain's moral climate had changed. It took William Wilberforce 20 years to convince his fellow parliamentarians, but eventually the strength of the argument won the day. In 1807, the House finally voted to abolish the slave trade, 283 votes to 16. And the House rose and cheered this hard-won victory while William Wilberforce sat with tears streaming down his face. But it wasn't until 1833, 26 years later, with Wilberforce on his deathbed, that the practice of slavery was finally banned throughout the British Empire. This story is a shining example of the love that Jesus called for, a love for neighbour based on the dignity and value of every human life. And on this occasion at least, the beautiful tune that Jesus taught his followers was played clearly, wonderfully actually, and in a way that undoubtedly changed the world for the better. Not every culture has placed such a high value on every individual life as those cultures influenced by the story of Jesus. But that story has had a profound impact wherever it's gone. You see, the life of Jesus has had huge political and social implications in establishing what we might call the exalted individual. The life of Jesus where God himself becomes part of the human drama, tells us that the homeless alcoholic whose life is in ruins deserves respect and care. It tells us that the life of the illiterate peasant is worth as much as the prince. That the asylum seeker from a faraway land is worthy of costly hospitality and protection. That the demented old woman who can't remember her own daughter's name is owed care and attention. And yes, that the profoundly disabled dying child at Bear Cottage is worth whatever it costs to make their life more tolerable. This story whispers to us and tells us those things. And I would say from a sort of social political perspective, historical perspective, it's, it is, in my estimations, the greatest gift of Christianity to the world. It has made the world a much more kind, compassionate place because of this story. But there's another kind of really important part of Christian understanding of the nature of the human being, that the life and death, very importantly, and resurrection of Jesus is inextricably bound up in, and I think it would be neglectful of me not to mention it today. And that is that we are all, every one of us, weak, fallible, fallen people. We are wounded people. And because of our woundedness, we wound other people too. We have what I, what I think is a fabulous description. Francis Spufford, the British writer, it's what he describes as the human propensity to muck things up. I'm going to say muck. He wasn't as, wasn't as polite as me the human propensity to muck things up. Who of us can honestly say they don't sense that within themselves and with the people around them? And we've turned our back on God and his ways 
and we're not okay on our own. We are subject to not only the failures and faults within ourselves, but those of the people around us. See, the Christian view of human nature is, as David Bentley Hart of the gold bow tie fame tells us, he says it's both wise and extreme in that it sees humanity as at once an image of the divine fashioned for infinite love and imperishable glory and as an almost inexhaustible wellspring of vindictiveness, cupidity and brutality. And the great artists and writers, and I'd say f- today filmmakers, recognise this about the human condition. They, we see that all the time, right? Shakespeare expressed it very powerfully in the mouth of Hamlet. And he says it like this, What a piece of work is man. How noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form and moving, how express and admirable. In action, how like an angel. In apprehension, how like a god. The beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. And yet, and yet, to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Whatever godlike qualities we might possess as humans, we remain dusty and fallible and mortal. Dust to dust. Which is why we need Jesus. It's at this cross and resurrection that we get the perfect reconciliation of those two natures. This, what Christians claim, is a moment in history that tells us two things. We are all loved by God beyond measure. Loved by God to the point where he would go to enormous lengths to rescue us from all that's wrong with the world and what's wrong with us. That on the one hand. And and extraordinarily, it's him who provides the means or the path to overcome our deep need for forgiveness, for redemption, for healing. Jesus is Christianity's answer to the complexity and the mystery of human nature. And it does take some unpacking. Alpha course might help with that. But I urge you to, if you haven't already, to carefully look at the claims of this story. There's no doubt that they've shaped our culture in profound ways. They've shaped many of our lives in unforgettable ways. Many of us have become convinced that this person, Jesus, provides a compelling reason to hold on to hope in the face of not only life's joys and wonders, but also its disappointments and sorrows. And to place our trust in a God who loves us as a good father loves a child. A good father who holds on to us and won't ever let us go. That's what this story is all about. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for this astonishing claim that every person 
has this worth given to them because of who you are as a good father. Thank you for the incredible privilege that is. Pray that we'd be the sorts of people, that we'd be the type of community that values people in such a way and reflects something of that love to, to those around us. We ask forgiveness for the times we haven't treated people like they are precious in your sight. We pray that we'd be sustained by this story too. That tells us that yes, we are valued so immensely. Indeed, we do need your help, but also that that help is available through your son, Jesus. And we pray that that would become a very real thing for each of us in, in all of our lives. Amen.